0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Focus Forward, an executive function podcast where we explore the challenges and celebrate the wins you'll experience as you change your life by working on improving your executive function skills. I'm your host, Hannah Choi. You may not know this, but in addition to hosting our podcast, I recently started hosting the free webinars Beyond Booksmart offers to help teach people about executive function skills and related challenges. We have panelists who add their insight and perspective, and we cover a wide variety of topics. It's kind of like Focus Forward Live. It's such a blast, and I really love being able to connect with more people who are excited to learn about EF skills and how life-changing working on them can be. We thought it would be fun to bring the audio from our webinars to our Focus Forward listeners. There's just such good stuff in there, and I wanted you all to be able to hear it too. If you're interested in actually attending the webinars live, you can find more about them in the resources section of our website, beyondbooksmart.com. They're always free, and we put a ton of work into them to make sure they're truly useful, relevant, and relatable. So this past week's webinar was all about motivation. How it works, the related EF skills and challenges, and some tools and strategies to use to help make motivation a little easier for our kids and ourselves. Throughout our webinars, we always invite people to ask questions using the Q and A feature on Zoom, and then we answer as many as we can at the end of the presentation on the featured topic. And this past week, there were so many great questions left after we finished up the webinar, and we really, really wanted to answer as many as we could. So I met up with our panelists, Amy and Vin, the next morning to continue answering them. So keep listening after the webinar audio to hear our conversation. We cover all sorts of topics, including motivating kids with oppositional defiant disorder, college survival skills, and self-advocacy, and using planners and calendars to support that planning, prioritizing, and time management executive function skills. I really hope you enjoy today's episode and that you learn about motivation and its challenges. Which is something I think we can all relate to. The audio begins when I introduced our panelists. I figure you wouldn't want to listen to all the housekeeping stuff that I covered in the beginning. And if you attended the webinar, so you've already heard the audio from it, you can jump ahead to 44 minutes to hear these QA questions. And now, on to the show. All right, let's get to know our panelists. Both of our panelists tonight are Beyond Book Smart coaches. And they also provide additional support to both our coaches and our clients' caregivers as executive function consultants. And first up, we have Vin Kachurik joining us from Ohio. Vin, please tell us about yourself and your roles at Beyond Booksmart.
1: Hi, everybody. Uh, as mentioned, my name is Vin Kachurik. I use they, them pronouns. I live on a farm in Ohio with my spouse and uh, my elderly greyhound. He's sleeping over here next to me. Um, I'm an executive function coach and consultant here at Beyond Booksmart, and prior to this, I taught creative and academic writing at the college level for about 10 years. Though, given that most of my students were first years, I feel like a lot of my classes would have been better titled How to Survive College 101. Uh, I feel like I spent as much time teaching students to manage the challenge of college as I did teaching them writing, but that experience really helped me develop a lot of the skills that I use now, Um, experience that I hope will be helpful to you today.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Ben. It's really great to have you here with us tonight. Next on our panel is Amy McDuffie, joining us from North Carolina. Amy, can you please share your background and the work you do at Beyond Booksmart?
2: Yes, thank you, Hannah. Hi, everyone. I have been a coach with Beyond Booksmart for the past two years, and I'm also a member of our hiring team and an executive function consultant. I use she, her pronouns, and my background is in special education, specifically in behavior and learning disabilities, working with students from elementary through high school. I'm also a former behavior specialist supporting students from kindergarten through eighth grade with a focus on social emotional learning. I'm also the parent of two pretty awesome teens. I have a 14-year-old daughter and a 17-year-old son. And I'm so glad that you all are here, and I'm really excited to be with you.
0: Thank you, and welcome, Amy. All right. So Let's get started. Motivation itself is not an executive function skill, but it is supported by and made much easier by a bunch of EF skills. If you hear me say EF, it's short for executive function. Cognitive flexibility is needed to imagine a future state that is different from now and come up with ways to achieve it. Working memory helps to keep that future goal in mind. Organization and planning are needed to sequence the actions to get ourselves to that future state. And task initiation gets it all going. And emotional regulation helps us maintain optimism and persevere despite setbacks. So it's not really surprising that kids with EF weaknesses or ADHD can have concurrent issues with motivation. However, these underlying executive function challenges are often to ignore, are often ignored or unrecognized, or worse, misconstrued as laziness. So all of these EF skills that help with motivation live in the prefrontal cortex, our thinking brain, it's right behind your forehead. So if we have these prefrontal cortexes and EF skills that are supposed to be helping with motivation, why is it still so hard to get motivated? For kids, one huge part of the answer to that question is that their executive function skills are still developing, they're still emerging. And these skills don't fully develop until our mid to late 20s. So in addition to not having access to fully developed EF skills, they also don't have as many years of experience as we do and learning like what works and what doesn't work. And remembering this can help us be empathetic our children when they're struggling with motivation. They're not doing it intentionally or to be contrary, although it can feel that way. They're lacking the skills. And when we view their behavior only through our adult lens, it can set up unrealistic expectations for them. Our motivation and the related EF skills can also be impacted by systems in the brain. The limbic system and especially the amygdala, which detects threats, cannot differentiate between real threats like a car accident or a bear attack and perceived threats like a lot of homework or having to clean your room and so the limbic system detects the threats and then says alert alert get out of here or fight back because this does not feel good and in doing this it actually hijacks the thinking part of our brain and it sucks energy and blood and oxygen away from it and makes it harder Sometimes even impossible to access our EF skills, which, as we know, we need to motivate ourselves to do the things we don't want to do. So, managing our emotions so that we can stay in the thinking part of our brain is a huge part of conquering motivation. So, stay tuned because we're going to cover the executive function skill of emotional regulation in a bit. Another really, really, really important thing to look at is the ADHD brain and how motivation is impacted by ADHD. Amy, you are our ADHD expert. Can you explain this for us?
2: Yes, thanks Hannah. So there's some fascinating research on the impact of ADHD on motivation and understanding these dynamics can really help us to empathize with individuals with ADHD. So ADHD is associated with lower levels of the neurotransmitters dopamine and norepinephrine. And this changes how the ADHD brain perceives both reward and pleasure, which causes a lack of enthusiasm for starting or completing tasks. So this might be one reason you have difficulty with motivation if you have ADHD. And this can also mean that kids with ADHD experience much more frustration and failure than they do success, which has a negative impact on their self-perception and also increases stress. So this can become a real barrier to getting started. It can become a self-reinforcing negative cycle and also results in less efficient processing because all that stress just makes the brain shut down. And another big difference in the ADHD brain involves the brain structure called the default mode network, which is the part of the brain that activates when we're daydreaming or not focused on a task or activity. And when the brain is directed towards a task or goal, the default network deactivates. But in ADHD, this part of the brain is more often activated which leads to your focus constantly being pulled away from what you're doing in the moment and toward completely unrelated thoughts. So that explains why staying focused on really tedious or repetitive tasks can be such a chore with ADHD. It really isn't a matter of will, it's a matter of neurology. And that's why brain-based interventions can be really effective for individuals with ADHD.
0: Yes, thank you so much, Amy, for that. I know it really helps me to understand what's going on in the brain, and I always work with my clients to help them understand, so I hope you all found that helpful too. And if you're concerned that the causes of lack of motivation in you or your child run deeper than EF challenges or ADHD, please reach out to a mental health provider to explore the possibility of depression or another diagnosis. Okay, so now that we have a better understanding of how executive function challenges and learning differences like ADHD can impact motivation, we can see how the label of laziness is often unfair, yet it can often go a step further, being repeatedly told you're lazy can weave itself into our perception of ourselves and our inner narrative, like Amy said. And it makes it harder to break free from the label as you may even begin to believe it yourself. And this is where having someone you can rely on for support who's outside of yourself, who doesn't have the same perspective of you. And that becomes essential. They can help break those narratives and introduce new habits and ways of thinking. And I know this comes up often for us coaches. And so Finn, could you share a little bit about how you approach breaking that negative narrative with your coaching clients?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm happy to. So uh, as Amy and Hannah both mentioned, That negative thought cycle can be really, really debilitating. So one of the first things I focus on with clients is finding and celebrating those easy wins. Um, My favorite approaches to this are things like acknowledging overlooked successes and also finding simple goals that are fairly quick to accomplish with little support. So for instance, if a client tells me that every day they get up with their alarm, I am just over the moon for them. Like to do that consistently is an absolutely amazing skill. It's a solid routine they can build other routines off of. And it, honestly, not everybody can do that. And this shifts the perspective from what the client is not doing, which largely comes from those expectations to what they are doing, showing them that they have skills and strengths to be confident in. And if that same client tells me that they wanna do something like keep their clothes off the floor, but they just can't start that task of picking picking them up and organizing them, a simple win could be just taking the time to say, let's try it now and see what we can get done. There's no expectation of completion of the task here. The goal is to take some of the stress out of just initiating that task and celebrate whatever progress comes of it which can often be enough to sort of break that negative mindset. With both of these approaches though, I always try to understand why the client wants to accomplish a certain task. Because often what reinforces the negative cycle are expectations that don't value the same things that our clients do. Undervaluing the ability to consistently get up with your alarm makes the very tools that can help our clients seem worthless to them. And overvaluing a tidy room can negatively incentivize our clients to prioritize a task that isn't really important to them and often sets them up for failure. So to kind of put it simply, too long, didn't read, uh, to help turn someone's negative (laughs) narrative into a positive narrative, set up and celebrate an easy win to show them their value and then reflect on what they value and
0: why. Thank you so much, Ben. I love that. Someone submitted this request with their webinar registration, which I think many of us will relate to, and it also gets to the why that Vin was just talking about. Um, One registrant wrote, please help me understand why my son can be so motivated to get schoolwork done, but says that closing his dresser drawers and picking clothes up off the floor or cooking himself oatmeal is too much work. This is such a great question because it illustrates how much motivation is affected by whether we want to do the thing or not, whether it's important to us or not. And our parent perspective sure can be very different from our kids or even our partners. So in this example, the student is more motivated to do schoolwork than household tasks. And it may be because his schoolwork is just more important to him but to his parent, those household tasks are also really important. So how can we reconcile these differences in perspectives? Let's check in with our coaches to see what they have to say.
2: All right, so um, I wanna talk to you about a, a tool called HALT, which stands for Hungry, Angry or Anxious, Lonely and Tired, which I find to be really helpful to use this tool. These are all general triggers that can lead to poor self-control. And this is a good tool to use before addressing those differences in perspectives and just communication in general. You know, we all know that if someone initiates an important conversation when we're exhausted or haven't eaten all day, it's so much harder to receive the information and have a productive conversation. We're just not as great at communicating when those needs aren't met. And speaking of communicating with our kids, I know that we all want to help, to problem solve, to jump in and be a fixer, but we really have to remind ourselves that listening is the most important thing we can do when our kids open up to us. And this requires us to really tune in and avoid focusing on our own responses while our kids share their struggles with us. Our colleague, Denise taught me the acronym WAIT, which stands for why am i talking as a reminder to just listen we also have to remember that our kids experiences are very different from ours we really have no idea what it's like to grow up in 2023 and it's just not helpful to operate from the place of when i was your age
1: that's so true amy thank you and um, another tool to kind of go along with that that i like a lot for this is Covey Quadrants. Uh, Covey Quadrants, or sometimes referred to as the Covey Time Management Matrix or the Eisenhower Matrix, got a lot of names. It's a framework (laughs) for prioritizing time and tasks. So essentially, each task is classified by its urgency and importance, which then organizes it into one of the four quadrants shown here. So quadrant one uh, is the urgent and important quadrant. It's the top priority, the thing you really need to get done now. Uh, An example might be the big math exam is tomorrow and you need to prepare. The action for this is do it to the best of your ability, complete that task as you can. But keep in mind, That putting too many tasks in this quadrant can be overwhelming and often causes burnout, which may be why, you know, uh, in the question, the kid was like, oh, I can't make oatmeal, but I can do my homework. Well, that's because that quadrant was already full in quadrant two the not urgent but important quadrant, uh, that's for things like keeping up with an exercise routine. Uh, The action for that is schedule it. This is something that you want to make as routine as you possibly can. And because this is where the deep work and skill building really happens and where most people tend to be at their best. Quadrant three, urgent but not important. Something like it's garbage day, your chores need to be done tonight. An action for that is to either delegate it or ask for help with it. Uh, This quadrant often involves learning to set boundaries and advocating for yourself by asking for help when it's needed or learning to say no to what you can't accomplish. And lastly, quadrant four, the not urgent and not important quadrant, that's for things like watching TikToks or TV. Uh, the action for this is unfortunately deleted. Uh, these are often low value, instant gratification and avoidance coping strategies, which isn't to say you can never enjoy a little fun and leisure time, but just not to the detriment of other priorities. So if defining urgency and important importance feels a little too subjective to you, something you can do is use just a simple one to 10 rating scale to help clarify the value of each task. Using this framework allows us to better see and illustrate our own value systems. But the most important, important part of this is following up with those tasks that aren't as valued. For instance, watching hours of TikToks, not as an act of laziness or defiance, but recognizing it as A poor coping strategy when faced with a bunch of disorganized and overwhelming tasks that you don't know how to start or manage. Recognizing this provides an opportunity, like Amy was saying, to better understand differing perspectives and reconcile those differences and expectations that can often lead to conflict.
0: Uh, Thank you for those Finn and Amy and other strategy that may help with sharing expectations and understanding perspectives is family meetings and there's a lot of great resources online for learning how to hold effective family meetings and yes you'll probably get some pushback from the kids but stick with it the experts promise that it's worth it in the long run and you'll want to keep that whole tool in mind and make sure everyone is well fed and rested before you start the meeting. All right, so now that we've learned about the development of executive function skills, motivation and the brain, and how differing perspectives can play a part, let's look at some specific tools that can support motivation. As many of you asked about this. Vin and Amy, what are your favorite tools and strategies to use with your coaching clients to help them get motivated?
1: Oh, um, so one of my favorite one, it's actually two tools. Uh, I use them together. Uh, It's a combination of first step and five-minute goals. These are two of my absolute favorites, and I tell clients to use this all the time. Um, I find this really effective for task initiation, which can often be the most challenging part of any task. As the name suggests, uh, first step is all about finding the first step to a task. (laughs) Makes sense. And five-minute goals makes doing that step seem a little bit more manageable by setting the expectation of only having to do that task for, you guessed it, five minutes. After those five minutes, if it's not so bad, then, you know, keep going great. If you can't do it anymore, then just celebrate that you did at least five minutes of work, which is infinitely more than doing nothing. It seems simple and straightforward, but part of why this is so effective is that more often than not, we tend to view tasks based on their last step. We make dinner, we finish our homework, we go for a run and so on. And we lose sight of the initial steps that we need to get there, like deciding what to make for dinner, gathering homework materials, and warming up for a run. But even knowing where to start isn't always enough to muster the motivation, especially when the steps that follow feel big and insurmountable. So this is really where five-minute goals comes in to better manage those expectations and keep the focus more on those short-term steps that ultimately lead you to that task completion.
2: Thanks, Ben, that's really helpful. Um, Another tool that, that I like to use to address motivation is called decisional balance. And this tool examines the potential benefits and costs of making a change and also for keeping things the same and this can really help determine why making the change or doing the thing is important to you even if it's something that you find really mundane you know thinking about is there some bigger benefit down the road you know motivation can really be impacted about how we feel about a task and i just think this is a really great tool it also supports self regulation metacognition and even planning prioritization and time management skills <laughs>
0: Yes, thank you, Amy, and I wanted to bring up Covey Quadrants one more time, because in addition to helping us understand each other's perspectives as been shared with us. This tool can also help us with motivation and by completing the activity of the Covey Quadrants you practice the executive function skills of planning and prioritizing and Covey Quadrants can help you define what you truly need to work on first. And because sometimes it can feel like everything is urgent and important, which can make it hard to get started. And so Covey Quadrants kind of helps you narrow it down. And it can also remind you of those quadrants and those activities, sorry, in quadrant four, which might provide temporary relief from the discomfort of doing the things in quadrant one and three. But in the long run, these activities can have negative consequences. They divert time away from the important and urgent tasks in quadrant one. And they also divert time away from those energy giving and rewarding activities that are in quadrant two. And if you're having trouble getting buy-in from your child or even yourself to do this whole cubby Quadrant exercise, you might instead try simply making a list of everything that needs to get done. It sounds simple, but it really does help to get it out of your brain and onto paper. And just like Vin said, thinking about tasks as a whole can feel insurmountable, but seeing them written down one by one can help. Okay, so let's quickly visit the emotional, reg- uh, let's quickly visit emotional regulation. That's an executive function skill that is key to pretty much everything. Um, That was what we came, I mentioned that back when we were talking about the brain. So as we learned, being able to regulate our emotions is a huge, huge piece of the motivation puzzle. And it's much harder to use our EF skills to complete or even start a task if our emotional brain is taking control of the situation instead of our thinking brain. So panelists, would you please share your favorite emotional regulation tools that help us stay in our thinking brain?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm personally a big fan of breathing, Uh, needed to stay alive, but some simple deep breathing techniques can also do wonders for emotional regulation, especially with just a little bit of practice. Um, One I'm particularly fond of is the four by four square breathing technique. So you breathe in for four, hold for four, breathe out for four and hold for four. And there's tons of other variations on that as well. There's ones with, you know, visuals, geometric visuals and and meditations to follow and things like that. But what I find most effective about this is that it gives something specific to focus on the counting or the visual gives you something specific. I hear a lot from my clients, especially those with ADHD, that they just, they cannot meditate because they can't keep their mind clear. There's just too many thoughts and they don't know how to put them aside. Counting using the four by four can aid that focus to practice deep breathing, even without a clear mind. And you still get the one of the most beneficial parts of meditation from that.
2: I totally agree with you, Ben. Um, breathing is such an important tool for emotional regulation. And going back to our HALT tool for just a moment, I think we also need to be mindful of the role that sleep plays in emotional regulation. We can probably all attest to the effects of a poor night's sleep. You know, we tend to be so much more irritable and vulnerable to stress without sleep. So just a few tips for improving sleep are sticking to a regular wake-up time each day, getting some sunshine in the morning if possible. This really just helps to reset our internal clocks. And making your bed a sleep haven, so avoiding using it for work or homework, and also avoiding blue screen light, because that really stimulates our brains. I also encourage clients to establish a bedtime routine that includes calming activities leading up to bedtime, you know, something like reading or practicing that deep breathing um, even using an adult coloring book can be really soothing, really just anything that signals to our brains that we are preparing for sleep.
0: Yes, sleep is so important. Thank you so much for sharing those, Amy and Ben. Those, I, I use those, they work very well for me, and I also need to make sure I get a lot of exercise, and I also notice my kids do a lot better when they've been active. So something to remember is that with these emotional regulation tools and any of the other tools we mentioned tonight, we have to practice them regularly for them to do us any good. They need to be able to come easily to us when we need them. And that's only going to happen if we practice them. And sometimes kids can be resistant to using external tools. So what we can do is Normalize using them by using them ourselves and we can show them like hey i'm going to write this down, so I don't forget it or my day is going to be crazy so. i'm going to write down everything that I need to do and so showing them that you can use those external tools and have it be really helpful. Okay, so we're going to jump into our Q and a and see what questions we can answer for you, thank you for dropping some in there. Um, let's see, Hey, Amy, would you like to share, um, how we can teach executive function skills over the summer? Summer's coming up.
2: Sure. Um, I think summer is a really great time as coaches, uh, to work with clients on EF skills, because it really gives us the opportunity to work with clients in a, you know, low stakes, low pressure situation, um, you know, looking at what their goals are, what their interests are, um. Uh, Personally, I have really enjoyed coaching in the summer by um, tapping into clients' interests. Um, Last summer, I worked with a client who wanted to learn how to create a graphic novel. So we took that project and, um, you know, basically identified all the tiny steps to take along the way to, you know, to reach the bigger goal of developing that graphic novel and worked in so many EF skills along the way. So um, yeah, there's just so many fun things to do over the summer with coaching. Great, thank you. Um,
0: All right, so let's see, here's another one. What are some strategies to help kids who know what they are supposed to do and how, but still avoid the task because they find it boring, time consuming and not engaging for their level of intelligence?
1: Oh, I can take that one. Um, Okay, thanks, Ben. uh, So uh, first of all, a little personal background from that, uh, been there, Um, and both personally and professionally, um, one of the best recommendations I have is honestly add another layer of challenge to what they're doing. I mean, a lot of times creativity and intelligence kind of go hand in hand. And so there's a lot of opportunity to invite a creative perspective on how they approach that work, maybe, you know, taking it up a notch to do beyond what the, uh, you know, assignment asks for and do part of something that's a little bit more interest to them. Even if it means a little bit more work, at least they'll be a little bit more engaged in doing that. Um, And sometimes too, the other option that I find is that a lot of times A lot of times clients and students who have done that uh, or struggle with that, they're not being challenged enough in other ways, even just beyond the classroom. So even just affording an opportunity, prioritizing something that is more fun and stimulating to them um, can kind of open them up to like, okay, well, that was great. So I feel good. Uh, Now I can just tackle these other tasks. Easy peasy.
0: Yes, I love that. All right. I see a question that I'm going to steal. <laughs> How do you stay motivated through transitions? My kids always struggle with change and their already rocky systems tend to crumble. Yes, this is very tricky. Um, I actually interviewed um, a, a licensed clinical social worker for this. Her name is Rachel Holstein Lowe. Um, and you can listen to that episode if you uh, go back a few episodes um, in, the, in our podcast. And um Yeah, we talked for a long time about that and how challenging that really is and those transitions can come, they can be expected transitions like the beginning of the school year, the end of the school year, holidays, or they can be unexpected transitions like um, you have to move or, um, you know, just some, some unexpected change that can happen and The most important thing is to have something for your kids to fall back on. So they have like a really safe place at home. They feel really comfortable at home. So a lot of that like validation and connection that we can make with our kids to to, um, give them a safe place to feel, um, to, to be. And then also the sleep, nutrition, exercise, those three are huge without taking care of those, it's very difficult to manage those already rocky systems. Um, And so it it can sound um, silly to just to say that those are important, but they truly, truly are. And then also practicing some mindfulness can be really helpful too. So, um, you know, just taking some time to, to be in your body and to see how you feel and to just check in with that um, can also be really helpful with that emotional regulation that comes with those challenging transitions. Oh, all right, let's see. Um, uh, Let's see, how do you support a 10-year-old who is reluctant to change? Anybody wanna dive in for that?
2: I'm happy to jump in on that one, Hannah. Okay, thanks, Amy. <laughs> oh, Thank sure. you. <laughs> sure. Um, so working with, with a younger client who's reluctant to change, um, you know, it, I think it all comes down to just being able to connect with them and find out what's important to them. Even at 10 years old, they're going to have strong opinions and interests of their own. So I think it's really important to tap into that with them. And then, you know, also see, you know, what is motivating to them? What are they motivated by in their interests? And, you know, look at, you know, kind of bigger picture. Like, do they see areas where, you know, of their strengths? What are their strengths and areas that they need to, you know, maybe potentially grow in? And if you're able to kind of, um, you know, access that, that gives you an opportunity to really work with them on, Um, you know, let's see where we can make some small changes and just kind of experiment with some making some changes and see what happens.
0: Yeah. And that's why uh, when we work with our clients, we never like give extra work or anything. We just work with what our clients are already doing. Um, So that can be helpful to get that buy-in and make that connection is is meeting them where they are. Oh, all right. Let's see. Um, oh, someone would like Vin to share a few more examples of how to increase engagement by adding a layer of challenge.
1: Sure. Um, so, uh, one that I like a lot, actually, uh, and this helps in two ways, is actually timing your work, giving limited chunks of time to do it. So basically, challenging. So, like, how can you get this done in an hour? Yo, you're you're smart. You're good at writing, right? You know, can you write this paper in an hour? I bet you can. Yeah. Um, And not only, so that does a couple of things. One, it gives them a time limit to stay focused on the task. So they don't sort of lose themselves in the weeds and get bored. And then again, adds that layer of challenge to it. But the other could be something along the lines of, um, you know, giving them the freedom and flexibility or challenging them to do extra research into what they're doing. You know, if they're doing a set of math problems that they know how to do, and it's just really boring to them. Then you know, ask them to you know maybe find new math problems or harder math problems. Ask them to explain those math problems to you to be the authority, to be the teacher. Um, is the, all of these are really good ways to add an extra level of challenge and also responsibility that can kind of take them out of that. This is routine. This is boring. I don't want to do it. Feeling.
0: Love it. Ooh, let's go back to the brain. Um, Amy, you noted that low levels of neurotransmitters means that successes can be less reinforcing for those with ADHD. If this is the case, do small wins or other strategies help someone with ADHD initiate tasks?
2: That is such a great question. isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Yes. So yes, the answer is yes. Um, Those small wins absolutely help someone with ADHD um, initiate tasks. Um, As coaches, um, our job is often to help clients recognize those small wins. I find that working with clients with ADHD, they tend to have more difficulty, you know, recognizing what those small wins are, or just not seeing, not seeing them at all. Um, and we really have to, you know, look for those small steps that they're taking and help them to recognize that, you know, because that's a bigger part of the issue is, you know, the, the negative reinforcement that they've received and, you know, kind of that perpetuating, you know, narrative um, and, you know, experiences of failure. So it really is helpful to recognize even what we consider those small wins to help them get started.
0: That's great. Thank you. All right. Um, My child is entering college in the fall. Any tips to help prepare for this change? It's a big one.
1: Oh, man. Um, So there's, yeah, there's a lot. College is crazy. There's a lot to prepare for for that. Um, Honestly, I think the biggest thing and the most um, probably specific advice I can give is self-advocacy it's navigating college is really a matter. Like there's this mentality that when you go into college, you have to listen to what everybody else says and does all the time, but like they're there to serve you. You're paying to go there. Your education is a matter of what you choose and get out of it. So there's a lot of self-advocacy needed, especially in terms of saying, Hey, I need help with this. Hey, I need help with that how do I do this? And there's tons of resources on campus. The best and most successful students I've seen are the ones who are not afraid to walk into somebody's office and be like, Hey, can you help me? And like nine times out of 10, that person will, because that's their job. That's what they're there to do. So tell them, you know, really tell them, don't be afraid. You are ruler of the roost King of the castle there. They're there to help you, you know, and you have to advocate for what you need.
0: Yes, I always um, encourage slash make my college clients um, make sure that their teacher knows their name by the end of the second week. And it has come in handy so many times when they've had to, I remember I had one client who had to miss a uh, midterm because she was really, really sick, but because she had developed a relationship with the teacher, the teacher was completely understanding and, and was really gentle with her and allowed her to schedule it on a different day. And the so, more
1: you talk, the more you self-advocate, the easier yes. it is for them yes. to remember. And absolutely. And it makes that whole process so much smoother
0: Yes, a a lot of feedback that I get from my college clients is that they were scared or really nervous to approach their teacher. But then afterwards, they realized, oh, they're just human. And then they were not, they realized that they didn't have to be nervous. And then it was just so easy to do it the next semester. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, something else that uh, I uh, recommend for um, for entering college is just understanding the 80-20 switch. So when you're in high school, um, you know, like the 80% of it is um done maybe like in in school or with a lot of support and then 20% of it you got to do on your own, but it's the complete opposite in college. And there's just 20% of support given. And then you are responsible for that other 80%. And that can be really shocking. Um, I had a client say to me, I realized that I have to spread out my work over a few days and not just do it all like the night before it's due, which is usually what we have to do in high school, just do it the night before it's due. So that's a good thing to keep in mind all right Um, okay so since this webinar addresses kids are there any suggestions for motivation that apply to adults i i just want to say that everything all of this
2: can be used for adults
1: uh absolutely um yeah i mean really any of this 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 is not stuff that's you know unique to kids. Um, there's plenty of adults who struggle with this. Um, I would say probably the best suggestions I have are for really kind of going back to that self-reflection and understanding your values value system. Um, it it can get very easy to get sucked into the rat race of doing things to other people's expectations and to the detriment of yourself. So I would say the tools that we use like HALT, you know, checking, regulating yourself that way because you can't help anybody else if you haven't helped yourself. It's like oxygen masks on an airplane. Um, and, And honestly, also the Covey Quadrants are a great way to kind of break down your day and your routine and say like, what is really important to me right now? You know, it literally addresses that. What is important? Because it can be easy to get lost in things like saying, well, my work is important, doing the dishes are important, but maybe in a given moment, spending some time with your family is actually the thing that's most important. It gives you that that sense of you know longing or that sense of, um, sorry, family and like reduces that s- sense of longing that you may feel, that loneliness in the halt, right? And also just strengthens those bonds.
0: I love that. All right, I think we have time for one more. Um, Do you have a suggestion of digital planners or calendars for those who have reading and writing struggles, maybe dyslexia and ADHD, um, who need more executive function
2: help? I'm happy to jump on this one, Hannah. Um, Thanks, Amy. Yeah, sure, sure. So absolutely, Um, digital planners and calendars are so helpful. Um, I highly recommend Google Calendar. It's easy to use. um, It syncs across devices. And, you know, even, you know, younger children with access can even, you know, utilize them as well. Um, I utilize them with both of my children, just with us planning events and appointments so that they know what's coming up. And it's really helpful. There are so many other apps to use um, as planners as well. There's iStudies Pro. Um, my study life. I know that that one is free, and I believe it was actually developed by um, a student with, along with her mom. Um, it's a really good one, and I know a lot of clients who also use the Todoist app as well. So there are just a number of them out there. Um, and just on a personal level, I also really—I know this is not digital—but I I use a bullet journal for myself along with my Google Calendar and. Um, It's just a great way to kind of list out all of my to-dos each day in conjunction with my calendar. Can I I add one
1: thing to that bullet journal? Yeah. related to motivation. (laughs) One of the things I love about physical planners is I always suggest to my clients, customize them, personalize them, cover them in stickers, (laughs) draw all over them. Because honestly, we like pretty things. And (laughs) if it's pretty and attractive, we're going to use it more.
0: Mm hmm.
2: Absolutely.
0: I love it. That's my combo, too, is the Google calendar and a bullet journal. Can't live without it. <laughs> Okay, so this is where we ended our Q&A section of the webinar. Now, keep listening to hear the rest of the conversation that I recorded with Amy and Vin the next morning, which I might add was Vin's first day of vacation. Thank you, Vin, for taking some time out of your first day off to add your insights to our answers to these great questions. Hey, Vin and Amy, welcome back. Uh, We had so many awesome questions at the end of last night's webinar that we just really wanted to get back into and answer some of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining me again.
1: Sure. Um, Thanks so much. It was great last night.
0: Wasn't it? It was (laughs) so fun. Yeah, people ask such good questions too. I always wish we could see them. That's the one thing right. that I don't like about it. it. I feel a little disconnected from our audience. So, um, so it's, it's nice true. To that that is the
1: part be- that you miss. Yeah, getting that like good audience feedback is really, really good. <laughs> yeah. Cool.
0: yeah, it's like everyone has masks on, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So let's dive in, Um, let's see, what's the first one? All right, what are the strategies to develop motivation in teenagers with
2: oppositional defiant disorder? What a great question. That is a really, really good question, Hannah. Um, Honestly, I think that the strategies are pretty much the same as what what we have already discussed, but just knowing that it takes so much more time a lot of patience, um you know, t- to work through those strategies and, you know, really, you know, sharpening those communication skills that we had talked about is really, really important here. And I think that, you know, any opportunities for, you know, autonomy and, you know, giving the child ownership in the process is super important in these situations. Um, hey, and- uh, Amy. Oh, oh yeah. I'm
1: sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just... No, go ahead. I- in the webinar lesson that you talked about, like the, there was a lot of talk about like the neurotransmitters, basically acknowledging the bad more than the good right. a lot of times. And do you think that oppositional defiant disorder, like one of the issues is that being told to do something takes away that feeling of personal success and value of the task because you're doing it for somebody else's expectation and not really your own. That makes it feel like extra negative. I don't know. Does that tie in at all?
2: I think it does, because I think that, you know, again, that that piece of autonomy is so important here. So I think that's a really good point then. Um, And, you know, kind of going back to that, you know, negative track piece, I think that this is another situation where, I mean, that's a hard diagnosis to have for a kid. Um, It it really is. And, you know, I'm always concerned, like when I see that That label of what the child's perception is and what they understand about that. So I think that that's all really important to take into account here. And I really love, I love working with, with teens and kids that, you know, have ODD, because I feel like it's such a great opportunity to really connect with them. And that is the Mm. most important piece and to build that trust Um, and just to get to know them as a person versus, you know, what the, you know, what the label says or what the challenges are. And something that I have found to be really effective is, you know, really trying to set them up for opportunities for success. You know, what are their strengths and, you know, giving them opportunities for leadership. You know, how can we build their self-confidence, you know, to combat some of that, um, you know, the negative, you know, framing that they've had for however long. It ties back so, into
1: those easy win strategies right. of like acknowledging <laughs> what they're good at and you know uh, what's a, what's an easy task that we can support that they can do well.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I
0: had a I had a client who I started working with her when she was a junior and then uh, through her senior year, and she had oppositional defiant disorder, and um, <clears throat> and I did notice that uh, in the beginning it was. Um, well, I just noticed the biggest change in our interactions and her openness to try new things um, was after a while and after she learned that she could really trust me and that I was like trying to help her build that autonomy. And it, it took a while, but I did see a big shift in, in her, mm, I don't know, her willingness to work with me and to, to work on making some change after we had developed a really strong rapport
2: that collaboration piece, you know, is just so, so important here. So yeah. Great. I, honestly, you. that
1: I feel like that kind of ties into, I, cause I saw that a lot with like college age clients back when I used to teach college too. There's that mindset of, well, I have to only do what I'm told and I can't do like, I, like I, I can have autonomy. What is that? I don't know her. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> like, it, I think that really ties into a lot of the struggle kind of jumping ahead of like pursuing the support services in college that we were alluding mm-hmm. to back in the the webinar. Um, like I know that admitting admitting that you need help too is also a really hard part of the process. You know? yeah. And again, I feel like the autonomy and the trust are the big parts of getting somebody to admit awesome. that they need help. Like knowing that, they're not going to be chastised for it or, mm-hmm. you know, like made fun of or torn down or anything like that. Because again, there's just, there's so much, I hesitate to say fragile ego, but when, when the systems that you've been taught aren't working for you and you've spent your whole life feeling like you're behind everybody else, you know, where do you develop the self-esteem and the yeah. self-confidence, yeah. you know?
0: Yeah, all right. And um, actually I love that we started talking about that because that was one of our uh, additional questions that we got last night, um, pursuing uh, s- um, support services in college. So that's great, we addressed that as well. All right, um, kind of on the same theme, is starting school, a, starting a new school a good time to start new habits or is that too much?
2: What, what are oh, our thoughts on that? I, I love that question. <laughs> um, I, I think it's the perfect time to start new habits because, you know, starting a new school or a new school year, I mean, that is, that is a fresh start. So I feel like that's the perfect opportunity to, to try doing some things differently, you know, getting into a different routine and establishing, you know, those habits, figuring out what works. So yeah, I think it's the perfect time. I, I And I think Jen's point about like
0: small, small things, like start small, maybe not yeah. overhaul your entire <laughs> <Right>. life. <Yeah. laughs> but yeah.
1: I think another advantage of starting fresh is that um, there's fewer bad habits to have to break or overcome first. I mean, that's one of the things that's kind of difficult about habit building. we like to think in terms of like building good ones, but a lot of times that means overcoming bad ones, yes.
2: yeah. ones that we don't even realize
1: are <laughs> habits, right?
2: Right. Um, Right.
1: So starting in a new situation, you're a little bit more self-aware. Sometimes that translates to self-conscious, which can be a little overwhelming, but um, you know, you're more aware of new surroundings and all of that. So I think it's easier to avoid falling back into bad habits and building new ones fresh as long as you start
2: small. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I think
0: it's really important to take time to reflect on what your previous experience has been and what you liked about that what worked for you and what didn't work for you and what you want to change in the future because if you can spend some time having that conversation with someone who's going to be really supportive and open for that conversation um it can really help to narrow down what you want to start with like what what small goals you want to set for yourself so that self-reflection piece is really helpful in that in that instance yeah great. Definitely a challenge of habit building
1: though, is taking it, not just starting small, but taking it methodically. I'm just like thinking, I'm thinking of the example of like all the people who are like, you know, new year's resolution style habit building Mm. of like, I'm going to (laughs) start my new diet and go to the gym and I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to be perfect and all of that. And it's like, Okay. Good luck with that. Cause like you're starting two brand new skills and (laughs) habits that, you know, and you're like expecting results in a day and setting super high expectations and it just doesn't work that way. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I I think that like, that's a big piece of starting, you know, starting anything new is also looking at like, you know, what's likely to to trip you up. What's likely to get in the way here of of this working for me, because it's re I think it's really easy for us all to You know, to set goals. And unless we look at like, really, what are the obstacles? And how do I address those? You know, I, I think we can not be as successful if we don't look at those pieces too.
1: Reckless ambition, the dark side of motivation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I always ask my clients, is the goal that you're setting realistic and reasonable? Right. (laughs) Like, be (laughs) honest. Let's look at, you know, all of your life experience so far. Is this realistic and reasonable? Because you want to set yourself up for success. Nothing worse than not (laughs) reaching any of your goals (laughs) because you've set them too big. All right. Um okay here's a coaching question um how often would someone need to meet with an executive functioning coach to make it effective once a week every other week more than once a week i think well it really depends on the client um i think once a week is a great starting place uh sometimes i've done twice a week maybe broken that larger
2: time down into smaller chunks what about you guys yeah, I, I do think it's a good place to, place to start, excuse me, um, you know, just depending on what the needs are and you can always, you know, make adjustments from there. I think what it comes down to is consistency, right? Right. Yeah. So whatever, whatever you determine
0: is the right amount of, um, of sessions or the right duration or frequency, it's the consistency, mm-hmm makes a huge difference. It's very important. With
2: anything, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. True. Basically with anything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Keeping that momentum going is so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep.
0: All right. Once a child gets interested in something that they wanted to do, how do you keep them motivated to continue with it? Like clubs, clubs or sports? Um, They love the sport and playing, but they don't want to go to practice.
2: Oh, my goodness. This is so familiar, Hannah, just as a parent. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So my my response to this might be a little um, a little different, but I just having had personal experience with this in my home with my kids. um, I you know, we do things a little differently now. Um, And, you know, when there's interest in, let's say, playing soccer this season, you know, we sit down and have the conversation about what those expectations are. And what it means to commit to doing this thing, um, you know, there are going to be days where you don't feel like going, or you don't want to go, or you're just not as interested at times. But you know, we really talk about those upfront expectations so that we know what we're getting into, and and the follow through that, like, okay, so you want to do this, and you know, we're committing to do this for the next couple of months. And that means going to practice and just kind of laying it all out there before, you know, officially signing on to take on this thing. And, you know, beyond that, if you decide you don't ever want to do it again, that's totally fine. We can look at other things, but, you know, again, I think it comes down to just having those conversations up front about the expectations. And, um, you know, it's another opportunity to look at, you know, look at the, why, like, why do you want to do it? Um, and also look at, you know, those opportunities for successes, you know, within whatever the activity they're doing. Yeah. Um, my kids
0: both, my kids both play instruments. And so we deal with this a lot. They've both been playing for, um, a few years. And so it comes up a lot that they're just like, I don't want to practice. And, um, something that, uh, something that is important to me is that it is okay for our kids to have discomfort. It is okay for them to, to feel like this doesn't feel good and I don't want to do this, but I signed up, I made the commitment, so I have to do it. If we always protect our kids from those feelings and then say, okay, you don't have to do it. I know you signed up for it, but now you don't have to do it because you don't want to no, Like, I, I think they need to follow through on the commitment that they made, and yes, they're going to feel some discomfort. But they're also, you know, like you said, the expectations were set up, and so now they need to follow through. And there's so many lessons to be learned yeah. in that experience. <laughs> Yeah, it feels awful, but hey, you're part of a team or you made a commitment to your teacher or whatever whatever that commitment is that you made. I do think it is a, a great opportunity to teach kids about
2: learning about that. Absolutely, And, and about perseverance too. So yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that
1: discomfort really like learning to sit with that discomfort is what helps you switch your perspective from have to, to get yes. to, yeah, which is very important for keeping up with that consistency. Because if you think of it as just a burden or a responsibility, like I have to go to practice. Yeah. That may not be the fun part. The fun part, may be the right. game, maybe you like the sense of competition. Yeah. You like the, you know, uh, high intense energy, or maybe you just like the performing part or playing around with your new instrument or whatever. Um, practice is hard, but it's what allows you getting to do that is what allows you to get to the fun parts as well.
0: Yeah. And be better at the fun parts. Yes. Right? And
1: be better. Like to, it, it
0: makes <laughs> the a better experience. more
1: enjoyable. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My dad said to my daughter, um, he's a musician too. And he said, you know what the, your motivation should be for practicing is so you don't feel like a jerk at um, <laughs> rehearsal when you're the only person who can't
2: keep up with the music,
0: like practice. Oh, so you can feel confident at rehearsal. That's so, great. That's yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes ever is by um, a psychologist called Susan David. And if you guys haven't uh, looked into her stuff before, you got to read it, read her things. It's She's amazing. And she has this uh, quote that uh, discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. And I just love that. And so whenever I'm in a situation where I am feeling uncomfortable, I just remind myself, like, something good is going to come out of this you're going to learn mm-hmm. from this you're going to have some amazing experience or whatever and it truly is so it's good for kids and in terms experience. of emotionally oh, right.
1: regulating that i can't stress yeah. the breathing enough yes. and halt yes. enough um, yes. i go back to those references again
2: cuz like if you can't stand the
1: discomfort a there's either something wrong you need to you know eat some food drink some water get some sleep yep. something like that get some sleep. but like if you, all of those needs are met then just breathe. It right. makes it yeah. so much better. Just yep. deep breathe. a few deep yep. breaths.
0: Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right. Lessons for life. Just breathe. Yeah. <laughs> Just breathe. <laughs> I mean, it's literally a function of living. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. That was so funny when you said that last night. I know. (laughs) All right. uh, Let's see. Here's, oh, I think this is our last question. All right. My 19 year old son told me he's terrified about trying his hardest only to still fail in the end. What are we just talking about? It breaks my heart. How do you address issues around motivation that are derived from fear of failure? Yeah. Yeah, So perfect question to end with.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. That the, the way that you combat fear of failure is, again, it's that have to not get to. That's where the fear of failure comes from. It's from the the distance between where you feel you are and the expectations that are set above you. Um, that's where things like shame and doubt just reign supreme um, and can get the better of you. So a couple things to do with that is seeing it less as the end result is the expectation and the doing is more the expectation, finding the value and the joy in the doing the, Hey, I'm learning how to do this. Again, it comes back to starting small though, you know, do it with low stakes things. If it's a high stakes things, thing like uh, a final paper or a big game or something like that, where it's all on the line. No, that's, that's too much. It's very overwhelming, but I think giving like little like bits of like autonomy or responsibility to allow someone an opportunity to fail and get comfortable failing and learning from that failure in a low stakes environment um things like okay so you know you're going to be in charge here's here's a houseplant you now have a houseplant here's a living thing that's going to depend on you here's some instructions for what it needs and how to take care of it don't let it try not to let it die you know um kind of thing and it's like you know find and and take the opportunity to find joy and relaxation in doing that task you know um giving the opportunity to like here research some some you know here's some resources on uh some plant blogs of people who have you know what they like to use and what they like to do you know um i always one of my favorite things that i like learning about new clients is i always try and get at the heart of like what do you geek what's the thing <laughs> that like you geek about and obsess over Mm -mm -mm. because finding that there's no fear of failure in that. Yeah. They love it too much to fear failure. (laughs) And so I try and like bring that sense of like, whether it's joy and or obsession, sometimes there's a fine line between those two things. (laughs) Um, I try and bring that into other tasks that we're focusing on and be like, how would you approach this? If it was, you know, uh, you know, this video game you love, or you know, if it was this sport you play or, you know, this uh, I don't know, K-pop band that you're obsessed with, right? Yeah, you know, right. Yeah. <laughs> um and and like, you know, because they don't they don't have any sense of fear or worry over those things because they already feel like they're experts at it. Mm,
0: yeah, you know, Love that. But it's
1: because it's low stakes. Nobody else has any expectations of them being perfect.
2: Yeah. That's yeah. great. Yeah. I, then I think that's so important. Um, and I, there's so much to be learned by failure. And I think that, oh, yeah. you know, um, like as a parent, I feel like it's part of my job to, to model for my kids that, you know, we all fail, you know, at times, um, you know, we all make mistakes and, you know, it, it's like you said, it's not about, you know, the end result. Always. It's the process of what you've learned along the way. And so I just do think it's really important to model that, you know, this is, you know, you know, part of life that, that we run into, you know, struggles and, and failure at times. Um, I remember when my kids were, my son was really young. I, I read a book, I believe it was called The Gift of Failure. I can't remember the author's name, but it was really wonderful for me to read and just to kind of look at failure from that perspective, because, you know, of course we all want our kids to succeed and do well, but there is so much to, to be learned along the way, um, with that struggle. Yeah. The
1: the road to success is paved with bricks of failure. Something, (laughs) something like that.
2: Yeah. Was it, um,
0: the gifts of imperfection by Brené Brown? No, it was not Brene Brown. Oh. Um, okay, yeah, up. that's a good one too. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Something that I um, that I really find helpful with failure is getting away from th- that black and white thinking of either success or failure, yes. and how there's there are so many. Um, layers to it. And so many, you might ultimately have failed, but maybe there's some kind of like win along the way.
1: Like you said, Amy, modeling for people, I think that's an important thing to acknowledge too. Um, I know personally, like when I was growing up, big time perfectionist, I would mm. collapse and crumble at even the slightest hint of failure or criticism. Yeah. And it it yeah. made it so hard to learn and grow. Um mm-hmm. And the really, I think something that I had I personally had to do a lot of work for was accepting that sense of like vulnerability, that feeling of discomfort, that feeling of yeah. it's okay to not meet these expectations. It's okay to not be perfect. And the thing that comes with that is you can be so much happier there. Right. It's hard cultivating a lot of that inner strength. I know I'm getting a little bit into like therapeutic mindfulness, uh kind of talk here, <laughs> but um it it's It's ultimately so much better. I I think it is that I think that's the the crux of the uh, what is it failures the the or discomfort is the price.
0: Discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's really what it is, because that's where you find that sense of like, I'm happy with what I did. Right. You know, I'm okay. I am comfortable. You know, and setting those expectations for for yourself. Obviously you want to keep learning and growing, but you know, and acknowledging what you did along the way is is a key part of doing that.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. And it is so hard to break those um, negative narratives that we talked about last night and today. And especially like kids who have some kind of diagnosis like ADHD, like they're getting way more corrective messages growing up than, than kids without, you know, any, any kind of diagnosis. And, and so not only are they dealing with, you know, the the way that they feel, they're also dealing with how other people are expressing their feelings about them too, which is, which is a lot to carry and can really explain why it is difficult to deal with this perceived failure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: That's well, thank you so much for joining me today. I love talking with you guys. So,
2: oh, yeah,
0: I feel like I could talk about it all day.
1: (laughs) Seriously, absolutely good. I could still keep
0: going. Um, Yeah. But uh, I'm sure our listeners have some other stuff they need to go to. Yeah. <laughs> <So, laughs> they have to they have to see they have to try to complete those reasonable and realistic tasks that right, they uh right. set for themselves today. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah, we we don't want to be a barrier to them moving no. forward. <laughs> <So>. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't and we also don't want to give them too much uh quadrant four indulgence. Yeah, yes. um, That's you right. know, like the, oh, well this is educational, so I can just listen to this and ignore right. everything yeah. that I'm doing. Of doing just what i need to do yeah
2: yes but <laughs> yeah. if they've managed what's in quadrant one and quadrant three well then they've hey, got yeah, time they can move it into quadrant
0: two you
1: know? yeah. <laughs> maybe catch up on some, right. some past podcasts
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yep or some sleep <laughs> yeah
1: that too sleep's always
2: good yep yep all right have a great day <laughs> thank you you too thank you both And that's our show for
0: today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen. I really hope you learned something about motivation. And if you wanna watch the entire webinar, you can find the link to it in the show notes. And I also included some links to some of the graphics that we shared during the webinar. You can find out more about upcoming events by signing up for Beyond Booksmart's monthly newsletter, The Monthly Think, or by checking the events page on the resources section of our website. If you know anyone who might want to learn about motivation, you can share this episode with them. And you can reach out to me at podcast at beyondbooksmart.com. I'd love to hear from you. Please subscribe to Focus Forward on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can give us a boost by giving us a five star rating. Thank you. Sign up for our newsletter at beyondbooksmart.com slash podcast, and we'll let you know when the new episodes drop, and we'll share information related to the topic. Thanks for listening.